Welcome to Time to Talk. I'm your host, Alex Holmes. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey for this past year. It's not been an easy year for everybody. It's least of all been an easy year for me. This year has been a year filled with anxiety, trepidation. <laughs> um, it always makes me laugh when I think of the phrasing of trials and tribulations because some people are always like, why they got to be tribulations with the trials? Um, why they got to be together? <laughs> um, it's been a hard year. It's been a hard year. And I am by no means arrogant enough to think that I'm the only one that has had uh, a tough time with it. We are in the second phase, the second year of the pandemic. It is painful. It is painful to sit down and watch this happen, watch this play out on the news every single day. It is painful to consider that should anybody wish to bring a child into this world, we have no idea what we're going to bring them into. We have no clue what to expect. There is no trust. There is no certainty, as you would expect in life. There isn't any certainty. But there's also no security. There's no safety. All I am feeling about this year is fear, is disheartenedness, heartbrokenness, hopelessness. Every time the radio goes on or the news comes on in the evenings or the newspaper gets pulled out, every time I look, I'm expecting to see something, something tragic. I scour the pages of newspapers for good news I scour them and I'm like, okay, I just want to find something good. I want to find something I feel good about come from this. And it's just not there. It's just not there. So sorry to start this on a quite, on a, quite a depressing note, but it just really made me really upset to just, just to think that there's so much that's, kind of, that's happening and we just, it just feels like we're so far away from real change. But the positives of this year. My book came out in 2021, at, in April, and I've been pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, and I love the, the support that people have given me. I love the energy and the love that people have shared and connected me with, and the opportunities that I've had since, the speaking, the workshops specifically to Black Minds Matter and to Trigger Hub. Um, they have been the, the key like, platforms that have really supported me going through. Um, Barton, the Black African Asian Therapy Network, they have been amazing supports for me this year. Manual, um, Men of Manual, who I'm an ambassador for. Um, Movember really supported me 
throughout uh, November beyond equality a super super shout out to them for their work in reducing gender violence and other aspects of masculinity and reshifting and shaping behavior and to you guys just for listening each week for some of you that are new and you haven't been here before um just want to say thank you thank you so much for just for coming and for and for sharing whether you do share publicly or privately at this stage you know i'm just glad that you're listening whether you share publicly or privately i think i'm past that <laughs> of wanting to see when people share but you know if you when you do share share and i am so happy and so privileged to be in a position where i can speak to sorry where i can speak to people each week and bring an insight of their own philosophies their own ideas their own challenges their uh, new ways of thinking new books to read and i'm just so so happy and proud of that from this year this year as i said has been a hard one this year has been a challenging one but we continue, we move forward. And as I'm recording this, the day it goes out will be New Year's Eve. So happy New Year's e New Year's to you. Um, I have just turned 30. <laughs> I have just come back from a, an interesting few days celebrating my 30th. And so this is in some way, it's a preemptive uh, recording. But again, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. So this episode of Time to Talk is, I don't know if you would remember a few months back, a few weeks back even, on International Men's Day, November the 19th, um, I hosted a panel called Man Talk Live with Trigger Hub, who have been huge supporters of my book. Um, and on the panel, we... We had a conversation with a group of amazing individuals who have had experiences with mental health and the majority of them are men, yes, but you know we have a woman on the panel as well who lends her perspectives and ideas because some of these issues are universal, they're not just specific as well. So we had a real, real insightful conversation and I know not many people got to watch the live stream and not many people got to watch the uh, watch it live even. Um, I will have probably even seen the recording. There should be, there's a video out there somewhere. Um, but I wanted to put this on my platform um, so that you guys can listen to it and get the, get the ideas. So on the panel with me is former Blue Peter presenter and Sky Sports commentator, Simon Thomas. He lost his first wife to blood cancer and he wrote a book which was published by Trigger Hub called Love Interrupted. We have Dr. Az, he's a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and he works along the lines of gender dysphoria. So we have a conversation around trans identity within this conversation. 
Adam Shaw, who is a pioneering advocate for mental health. Um, and he's a philanthropist and he's the founder of Shaw Mind and Trigger Hub. We have James S.B. O.B.E. And he's the author of Make Your Mark in the Workplace. And he has over 50 years of experience in managing and developing top global brands. And he has a he was the oldest on the panel, um, but he had real, real experience of it was great to get his nuance of what it meant to be a man when he was growing up and the, the changes that he's seen going through his 70 odd years. Amazing. We have Tom Chapman, who's the author of Barber Talk, and he's an award-winning barber. He's a public speaker, um, and he's the founder of the Lions Barber Collective. And yeah, he's an amazing, amazing man, just really talking about why men feel so uncomfortable about intimacy and, and touch, and that's, that's really really um, a very specific understanding as to how men really think about that kind of connection. We have Hope Virgo, who was the only woman on the panel, and she's a multi-award winning international leading advocate for people with eating disorders, and that spoke a lot to the conversation we have around body image. We have Johnny Benjamin, who was the like the second guest of my podcast ever um and it was great to see him again and chat to him about you know just mental health across the spectrum and he does this he runs a charity called beyond which goes into schools and you know empowers young people with their mental health and, and you know sets up curriculum and it's great um we have this amazing conversation and it was so impactful and empowering that I still feel shivers when I think about just the energy and the effort that we went through to create such a powerful evening. And this is the kind of energy I want to bring into the new year. This is the and this is, these are the ideas that I want to bring in. These are the people, the love, the community that I want to bring into the new year. And I think that the more we can have conversations. I want to go in depth. I want to get people to really think about where we're at with this. As I, as you know, I'm an existential coach and writer and I'm studying as a psychotherapist and I just love going deeper and really getting to the nitty gritty and understanding where we're all coming from. So I'm looking forward to the, to the level of conversations that we can have going forward in the new year more writing, more conversations, more impact, more listeners, more stories. So as ever, you can contact me wherever you need to find me. Just go to alexholmes.co and in the new year, there will be some workshops, there will be things. But for now, there are there's a newsletter, which is Liminalities, which you will notice has changed from the Heart to Heart Letters. And I'll go over that another time. Um, but Liminalities is there. And if you go to alexholmes.substack.com, you can sign up. And share and share alike. 
remember, you're not alone in this. You're not alone in this. We are all connected. We are growing in connection. We're getting serious about what it means to be human here. And I'm loving the conversations that we are having. I'm loving the people that we are meeting. I'm loving it. And I just really, really want to do more of the same next year. So without further ado, and I've taken up nearly a quarter of your hour with this spiel, um, let's get into the show. Let's get into the panel and have a listen. And I will catch you in the new year. Have a happy new year. Um, thank you all for coming out tonight to join in this discussion about men's mental health and the first man talk um, with Trigger. And um, listening to all of those, uh, those stats and those figures, I flashed back to when I was writing the book, um, Time to Talk, How Men Think About Love, Belonging and Connection. And I sat there and I wrote it throughout the pandemic and I was having these conversations with um, these guys and on various different topics around self-compassion, self-doubt, um, vulnerability. And I was thinking, no one's going to connect with me on this. People are going to like turn down my call. They're going to reject the email. They're not just going to ignore me. But the amount of people that were flooding in and wanting to share their story, I had to whittle it down to so few, like so few, so people, so that it wasn't uh, a very confusing or convoluted kind of book. Um, and it was just powerful to realize that we aren't alone in this. And sitting here and looking at this panel and seeing how so many of us are here and willing to talk about this. Um, and then looking at the stats that Willity, like, you know, that Sam and Sadie brought up, it's so powerful um, and important that we have these conversations. So um, I want to say thank you for doing that. And, um, and it's a pleasure to be here on this panel with everybody um, that's here to talk about men's mental health. And um, the book that I wrote is centered around six men myths. There were around 50 that I wrote down. My editor said, no, you can't put all 50 in the book because um, it will just become some kind of compendium. Um, so they made me whittle it down to six. And um, the six myths are real men don't doubt themselves. I had a conversation on my podcast um, that came out today. Um, and one of the, the psychotherapists that we were speaking to, Nathaniel, okay, he said that there are these expectations that men have to encounter when they're in their family or when they're in society. And he said, you know, you're usually the first call for all sorts of things security-wise, security-based. So if somebody breaks in, you're the first to go down. If there's a mouse that's dead, you're the first to go down. I'm scared of mice. <laughs> My dad said to me, well, when you get your own house, you're going to have to you know, get all the mice and, you know, and I'm just like, I just don't want to have to do that. But these are the expectations that are put on us. And um, it just made me think about that when I was, when I was looking through the myths to bring today. So real men don't doubt themselves. Real men don't cry. Real men are fearless go-getters. Real men don't have any worries about their bodies. And I found that specifically untrue, especially when men reach middle life. Um, <laughs> real men never fail and real men are lone wolves. So, to crack on with the discussion, I wanted to ask each member of the panel, what do you think it means to be a man today, in 2021? And let's start here, Simon. 
Well, I can only really speak from my own experience, but, but for me, the most important thing in terms of what I've kind of dealt with over the last four years is the most important thing for me in terms of being a man in 2021 and actually trying to change the narrative, that depressing, sad narrative we saw in those stats is, is that actually vulnerability is a powerhouse as a man. And actually there's a woman as well, but, but for men we are so very, very bad at seeing vulnerability as powerful. We instead see it as a, as a weakness. If you are brave enough to open up about a struggle at work, you, your immediate fear as a man is that this is going to be seen as weakness. This is going to be seen as someone who can't do their job properly. And I, I just wanted to tell this story very quickly. I know it's slightly off what you're saying, but I just, it, it reminded me so much of a man I worked with on Blue Peter for many years. Uh, we used to do a summer trip. They called it the Summer Expedition, the Blue Peter Expedition. Every summer we'd go out for four or five weeks. And it demanded people who could last the course, particularly the camera crews, because they were out every day. We'd get a day off every now and again. The camera crews didn't. And we had a guy called Will Gibson, who's an incredibly talented Australian cameraman, lived down in Melbourne. He wasn't with his wife anymore. He had a son called Jared, who he absolutely adored. And as I was looking at that and listening to the guys here, it reminded me of Will, because Will was just the best guy you could have on a trip. The life and soul of the party, strong both physically, but also apparently mentally as well, and produced the most stunning films uh, from his craft. And a couple of years after I left Blue Peters, it was about, about 2007, I'd been texting him for a couple of months, never heard anything back. I thought that's unlike Will, he normally texts back fairly quick, obviously there's a time difference. And then news came through that Will had thrown himself off the cliffs in Melbourne. This son that he adored in that moment wasn't enough and Will took his life. And it became clear as the weeks went on and this is unpacked is that Will was bipolar. But Will had never wanted to admit to being bipolar for fear that that work would dry up. The fear, as we saw in some of the things on the screens there, that if, if he's honest about being bipolar, we don't want this guy on our six week filming expedition because he's at some point, you know, this is all going to come to the fore and he can't do his job anymore. And I just thought, I wish Will, in all those times we sat in the bar, and actually I realised as we unpacked it, that's why Will spent so little time on these trips alone. We used to think, how does this guy do it? He's like the Duracell bunny. He'd be the last one to bed and the first one up. The amount of time he ever spent on his own was tiny. And at the time, we just thought he's a party animal. But actually, Will feared being in his own company. And when he went back to Melbourne and had those little periods where there was no work, he went to some really dark places. And on that day in 2007, it led to him taking his own life. And I'd wished that he'd had, in all those chats I used to have with him, both on the phone and face-to-face -face in the bar, the vulnerability to say, Sai, I struggle with this. And I'd like to think that I would have looked at him, knowing a lot less about mental health then than what I do now, and go, Will, that's okay. That is okay. So for me, being a man in 2021 in terms of how I manage myself when I'm struggling is that I see vulnerability as a powerhouse, not a weakness. Um, I, did, I did want to ask Tom, because we had a conversation um, prior to this and we were talking about how men open up to other men as well. Um, so I wanted to see what you thought about what Simon just yeah, said. Well, yeah, I think... We were talking about this earlier on. We did something earlier on where we were cutting um, some guy's hair, um, the lion's barbers. Obviously, I am allowed to touch. These hands have fondled many beards, have been through, <laughs> run through many fingers, through people's hair, and um, including Johnny's. And you know, it's it's a very um, 
privileged position to be in society. We have a license to touch intimacy. Uh, we hold, we wield sharp objects around your head and you sit there and it's very comfortable. Whether it's somebody I've known for 20 years or somebody that I've known for 20 minutes, there's something about that barrier of having a haircut where it's a non-clinical, non-judgmental, safe space. We are a familiar stranger. You can offload to us and we're not gonna tell your friends or family or we don't know them normally. Uh, but we've been there for that whole journey for uh, clients of mine I've known for 20 years and I knew them when they were a single man and they told me about the first date with their now wives. They told me about, uh, they showed me engagement rings, they, babies' names before anyone else knew, uh, what happened on the stag do, you know, all, they, yeah, all sorts of things. And it's, and it's, you know, often joked around that guys will rather cheat on their missus than cheat on their barber. You, see, you hear it all the time and you say it to people and they go, yeah, I said it before in, in talks and blokes, you see a few of them nodding like, yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but it's that relationship is so strong, but we're also there for the, the, the downs as well. We're there for the, I was there for the, the weddings and the proposals and the babies, but also, I was also there for the miscarriages and I was there for the redundancies and the divorces and the funerals. And, and I think I've, I've got quite a, a strange relationship with the men I see in my life because I hear everything about them. Men tell me so much. And I think it's such a powerful thing. And I think actually we were talking about this earlier on, what's it like to be a man in 2021? And I think everyone is so individual. We live in a quite a open, accepting time, probably the most we've ever lived in. And I think it's amazing how much we are striving forward. And I think it's less about being a man, but about me being Tom and what I am, rather than feeling like I should be something that is passed down from generations. It isn't relevant, really. Um, we all need to experience our own lives and experience our own feelings and have a, a men should be looking after each other rather than, rather than competing with each other all the time and banter, which is basically bullying, um, you know, and being scared to be on the other end of it. So you join in on it. We should all be building each other up rather than trying to compete with each other because we'd be able to just do so much more. We, and this is a great example of that. Of what these by us all working together we can get out an amazing message which can make a difference if one person watches this and says that has that moment and we've made a difference haven't we yeah for sure and that that whole leaving your brother situation <laughs> like i was in bondage this week because i was like i don't know whether i want to continue with my brother and i was sitting there and i was anxious and i was like why am i anxious about this and like, i went to sit down in the barber chair i was like i can't leave I can't leave this world, I can't leave this relationship that you've built. This person has cut my hair for so long, has sat with me, has like, you know, had conversations with me and I can't just end that relationship. And I, you know when you, you build it all up, that kind of feeling of anxiety, and you're just thinking, why? Why is it that we have such a, that we hold such um, a connection to that? But I did want to ask Hope, as the only woman on the panel, what do you think um, you know, it means to be a man today, from your perspective, from looking outwards? Yeah, um, I think for me it's about being able to just say anything without that fear of shame. I do think that, as we and we heard it in the stats as well, there is so much shame currently in society and I think probably society implants a lot of that shame onto us through expectations, through all of the things we see on social media, all of these kind of modern societal pressures. And it's really, really heartbreaking, I think, the amount of 
men who cannot talk about actually what's going on for them for the fear of shame or you might have someone who's a recovering addict and they go out and maybe they have a drink and they shouldn't have and then again they're sitting with all of that shame around what they've done and they feel weak and like a failure or a lot of the work that I do is particularly around eating disorders and the amount of men who are currently struggling with eating disorders and particularly over the last couple of years this huge increase with men I think aged 35 to 44 and a lot of that is wrapped up in shame and guilt but they're just not reaching out for support because because of the shame. So I think for me, it's about being able to just speak with no shame about anything that's going on, even if it's the really minor things that maybe don't seem like a big deal to others. Mm, that's important, the shame. Dr. James Espy, what do you think? Well, uh, I'm the geriatric here. I'll be 79 next May. So when I grew up, I'm a fourth generation African born in Zambia. My parents got divorced when I was six. I was sent to boarding school four days and four nights away from home in Cape Town. Came home twice a year, lived in different houses, never had a home, and was one of the poorest kids at school. And one of the good things about that was that it gave me ambition, because if my parents had been rich, I'd have probably wasted it. However, we got beaten once a week. You're never allowed to show any emotion. You just had to, thank God, I played reasonable sport and was reasonably intelligent. But it gave me drive and ambition. And in the, 1977, I was brought to England as the first non-Englishman in the liquor industry. And I, they got, treated me as a foreigner. Good Lord, the savage of the colonies doesn't even know how to pass the port properly. Anyway, we had a lot of fun. And I spent many years building brands. Baileys was my partner invented. I was involved building Baileys, launched Malibu, Johnny Walker, Blue Label, Shivers Regal 18 and various brands. And moving on, um, when I was 65, I decided to create my own whiskey company called The Last Drop, the world's most exclusive spirits collection. And in my corporate days, I had the privilege of uh, flying first class, Concorde, all that rubbish. And then suddenly I went back to flying zoo class, staying in cheap hotels, working my backside off to build a brand at 65, working from home with no resources whatsoever. And then a big company acquired another company I was involved with, and I got shafted. And at 73, I thought my life was over. And people had seen me as a successful businessman. I thought my life was over. I was going to have to sell my house, and I had a serious breakdown. I was in the Priory for eight weeks. And I met a, a, a psychiatrist who saved my life called Az Hakim over there. And he insisted, after he tried to treat me, he said, I think you need electric shock treatment. So I had electric convulsive treatment. I had eight of those, saved my life. When I was in hospital, my company was sold, and a software company I started floated on the stock market. So suddenly, 73 years later, I was in a good place. And that's why I decided to get involved in mental health and giving back, because the number of people who say to me, James, but you, you've had a good career. I said, yes, but nobody knows what really happens. We weren't allowed to speak about it, certainly my generation. So I'm a great believer in opening up. And you know, next Friday, I'm going to have a prostate operation. But now, why I tell you that, I wrote to 40 people who expected me to come to a lunch. I said, I'm canceling lunch because of. At least 12 people have written back to me, say, good luck, well done. We've all had prostate issues. Because men don't talk about prostate issues. Women don't talk about breast cancer. So we've got to open up. And so I found being involved with Shoremind gave me a purpose to work with Adam and the team and, and, and Nick and Peter to help society open up. Every single person, male or female, have, has issues. There's nothing wrong with talking about it. I'm a great believer that if you do it in the right way, you will help people. So that's what I think we've got to do. Well, I'm done. I'm <laughs> yeah, um, good night. <laughs> That's a tough one to follow us. Dr. Ed, because... Um, yeah, how on earth do you follow James? Um, <laughs> <laughs>
badly and get to my skulls. Um, things I, I, I think I've got, I spend most of my, my day talking to people with mental health issues. So when I see patients who say, oh, it's so stigmatized, so difficult to talk about, I, I'm, I'm oblivious because as far as I'm concerned, everyone's talking about it all the time. But then I, you know, it's, it's a bit of a skewed day that I have. Um, and when I was, I'm unusual, I'm a psychiatrist, but I also do psychotherapy. And when I was running psychotherapy groups and seeing psychotherapy patients, I, was, I was realized that most of my groups were men, actually. Um, so I think once they are able to access help, then that's great. But I was also thinking about what you said, and I was remembering when I worked, my feedback, uh, when, I, when I was having my midlife crisis working in Australia on sabbatical, um, there was a crisis team in the hospital. and. Um, and all of a sudden, one of, the, one of the crisis team didn't turn up, the social worker, and he'd thrown himself off a cliff in Australia. And it was the, the least expected person that day that we thought were going to kill themselves, one of the team. Um, but none of us had an idea. They just didn't turn up one day. Um, so what is it to be a man? Oh, that's a bit of a loaded question for me because I'm, my, my thing is all about gender dysphoria. So I try and convince my patients that there is no difference between being a man and a woman. It's all a construct. So I try and encourage people to be whatever they, be an open, free, and talk about whatever they want and not being constrained by whatever rule system they think being a man is. Um, but, but yes, I, I'm, I, I think the more that people are able to sort of just do what they want and talk about whatever they think about, is, is, is the easier it is. And as soon as my patients do, like James said, as soon as they do tell people what's happening to them, they realize that half their friends have said, oh yes, I've had that too. I've, I've, I've been on antidepressants or I'm seeing someone and there's this notion that they're the only person that's suffering or going through something. But when they do tell people, they realize that actually they aren't. And there's lots of other people. It's, it's, quite, it's quite normal to be feeling not normal. Um, I did want to go to Johnny for this as well, because um, me and Johnny connected when I first started my podcast. So he's episode two. <laughs> there are 178 episodes. Um, so he's at the very beginning. And we were talking about his experience with the stranger on the bridge um, and kind of his story. But obviously now he's got the Book of Hope and, you know, and beyond. But um, I wanted to hear what your kind of perspective on this is. Yeah, see, I worry as uh, kind of like what you were saying. You know, we, we're in this bubble, all of us here. You know, we're talking there's, sorry, is that me? Sorry. Um, I think there's this, uh, this myth we're all talking about mental health now, especially like post-pandemic, you know, people are like, oh yeah, we're all talking about mental health now. We're really not, men are really not. So with, with our charity Beyond, we've got our amazing youth board there. Um, we, <laughs> uh, and our amazing CEO as well. We, we go into schools and, um, you know, that's when I really see that we're, men are really not talking about mental health. What I still find is that, you know, we give a talk and I'm, I'm generalizing, but usually it's like the young females that will put their hands up and get involved. And then, you know, it finishes, everyone goes out. And then there's always like groups of, of boys, young boys that like stand corners and they wait like one, one by one, they come out and gosh, they pour out all this stuff that they're holding onto. And it breaks my heart, um, you know, and, and I feel like the stuff is, is Again, because of things like social media, I do feel like the pressures are more than ever before. And yeah, the young boys come and they pour out all this stuff and they've never told anyone. And um, I hope it's all right. I think it's really important to say this because one, one young boy recently, he, he came to me and he said, um, 
I'm struggling, but if I tell my, my male friends, I'll be seen as a pussy. That's, uh, sorry to use that word, but that's, uh, I've got to be, you know, that's what young boys are saying. So, um, yeah, my worry is, is that, you know, we're thinking that, you know, yeah, yeah, boys are talking about mental, young, young boys, young people are talking about mental health. That's what we keep hearing. Yeah, young people are different. It's a different generation. Well, yeah, in some cases, but for a lot of boys, there is still this stigma. Um, and we, and we, we've got to do so much more work. And again, this is why it's a privilege to be here and to be working with Shawmine because we have to get in there early. And I'm not even talking about secondary school. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about like, you know, from like really, we need to get to boys. Um, and we're still not doing that. I still, you know, I go around sometimes the supermarkets and I still hear, and I'm not criticizing, but I still hear parents say to their young boys, you know, you know, stop the tears now, you're a big boy you know, stop crying, or, you know, come on, man up now, you're, you're a big boy, I still hear it. You know, it's ingrained in us, this thing of like, you know, boys, boys shouldn't cry, you know, boys should be tough and, and uh, not show vulnerability. So um, we've got so much education, education, uh, to, to be doing, but not just with, with everyone, with, 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 par with grandparents, with parents, and with especially. So, um, and, and the stats, you know, they just spoke for themselves, really, but I do worry actually about, um, and again, particularly with the pandemic, the impact that that's had on everyone, but particularly young people because of the time away from school and their friends and, and again, the, the impact on young boys. So um, is that kind of answer your question? That does, because um, I've always been like, well, we need to get to the boys and really start speaking to them. They're really, really young. I've got a nephew who's, okay, so he's one, but like, uh, but, and he had a birthday party and there was a boy there who was, crying and he was a, quite a teary boy um and I was just like okay this is not my child this is you know I'm just kind of like observing how he's being treated and I think thankfully people were like okay sitting down being compassionate and that and it, a part of me was anxious because I was like are, are, who's going to step in there and start to kind of control behavior and start to kind of really make him feel embarrassed because he was coming up against another boy who was quite boisterous and just like literally bullying him in the thing and I was just like how do you, what do you do? And it's just trying to observe that and just seeing how young it starts and then kind of like those little things you remember. And then, but parents don't necessarily remember those things when you start bringing it up when you're 20 and they're like, oh, that never happened. I never, I never said that. And I think that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the only thing I can relate to in that, which, which is a perfect example, is um, when I first made that kind of decision to write a book, to tell my story, um, you know, I'm just, um, I came from a very loving family, my, you know, but my dad and my father was a construction worker, my mom worked in a bank, and um, it was a very loving family, but a, a very kind of real life family where we never discussed mental health. Um, and I felt I was in a privileged position because I'd sold my company, so it was easier for me to speak out because I didn't have the risk of, well, you may get sacked or you're not gonna get promoted. I, I almost had that ability not to care because I had financial security, you know, which is a lot of people don't have, and I was very fortunate. But when I did, and this is a perfect example about the generations and, and being a man and what it is to be a man now and what it is compared to being a man years ago. I mean, I could, we could not be having this conversation 20 years ago, could we, right, around the table. But when I wrote my book and I wrote it, I didn't tell my parents that I wrote it, but when it was going to we were gonna put it out there. I sat down with my mum and dad to kind of explain that I was gonna put everything out there. And my dad's 
I love him very much and he won't be watching this because he hasn't got Facebook. He doesn't know, even know what it is. But um, my dad's words were, look, son, I'm very proud of you, but why don't you change your name in the book so nobody knows it's not you? And that was the perfect like, example for me to say, dad, that's the problem. The problem is that we have shied away from it as men. Uh, and I'm in a position where I'm fortunate that I don't have to care what people think because I have some security. But it showed me, and I love my dad to bits and we're very close, but it showed me the ge how many generations have been failed that my dad, he was not embarrassed for himself. He was more like trying to protect me. What are people gonna think? You know, what are people gonna think when you write that on a book to say, this happened, you were vulnerable, you tried to commit suicide, you did this. What are all your friends gonna think? And it was a conversation with my dad. And now, you know, he is the most supportive and my parents are, they're very supportive. Uh, but to me, that is, that is an example of where we were then and that generation to hopefully where we are now and that we can be a panel of, of men here um, and hope, because the female perspective is really important um, to say this, this is where we are now. And we have made massive strides, huge strides. But, and I know Johnny agrees with me on this because we've talked about it, but Sometimes, you know, talking is just not enough. We've done the talking, we're doing the talking, but we're now getting to a stage in society where actions have to start happening. And that's the key here. So I hope that that's the next journey in men's mental health and, and general mental health for kids and everything. Uh, and that's why going into schools and educating young people, which me and Johnny are passionate about with our charities, um, you know, not the sticking plaster technique and dealing with issues now. We can leave that to, you know, that's, that's vital because we need to help people in that situation now. But what can we do? You know, Johnny's charity beyond agrees with our charity on this and sure mind and is that we need to go into schools. We need to change that mindset. It needs to be normalized. Just like we educate children on physical health, we need to educate boys, girls on mental health. And hopefully, we will never be in a position like I was when I was with my father that kind of said, don't put that out there. Okay. I was scared to want for my book to come out. When I got the, the box with the copies, I was like... It's an incredible book, by the way. Oh, and it's done by Trigger Hope. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, um, I put it on the table and I was like, here, Dad, here's a copy. And I kind of like hid behind like... Um, my mum's reactions and I kind of went around there. But it was, and to kind of see him slowly going through the book and being like, oh, I didn't know this. Oh, I did, oh, I kind of get this, da, 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 da. And then giving it to his friends and then kind of having those conversations. I think that that's really, really interesting. I think it's about giving permission to be able to have those conversations. I think that's kind of what men like. They like to know that they're allowed to do these things. Um, one of the myths in the book was about body image, but Tom, you raised something about banter versus bullying and banter and joking. And I've always, and I've had these conversations with like my friends in my group chats and being like, oh, it's just banter. And then I'm like, oh, is it? What is that? Like, so what has everybody's experiences been with banter and bullying? And I wanted to cut you first. Uh, the thing is banter is what everyone else calls it. If you're, the, if you're the victim of it, then it's bullying, isn't it? And it's kind of this kind of, just an excuse. You can say, oh, it's just banter, and you kind of get away with it and go, it's just a normal bloke thing. And I've, we've, we're having some work done in our house at the moment, so we've got some builders in. And, you know, construction has the highest rate of suicide of any, of any industry at two a day. And imagine being a 20-stone 
scaffolder covered in tattoos going to work and saying, I'm really struggling with my mental health. You just get bullied. And the thing is, we're all dealing with stuff. We've all got stuff going on, but we kind of go, oh, they're picking on him. I'm going to join them because otherwise they're going to be picking on me. And I, I've been through it. I'm a, I'm a big guy. Um, I've always been, yeah, I've always had that thing. Everyone calling me big man. You're right, big man. Also. And I've always wanted to be smaller. I've hated being big my entire life. I've never, you know, I go to the gym every day and the lads are now going, oh, you could be loads bigger. You could get on the gear. You'd be massive. You'd be that. I'm like, no, I don't want to be massive. I, don't, I, yeah, I want to try and shrink and hide behind it. But, and I think, you know, for men, that body image thing as well is massive. I mean, I've struggled, I struggle with it all the time. I go up and down in my weight. I've, you know, fluctuated, I put on a lot of weight during lockdown as well. I lost a friend to suicide and we had some issues with some volunteers and I just ate my way through it. Um, my mum and dad being chefs as well, that kind of doesn't help. But um, you, you, can't, you can't turn on the TV without, you, you watch Emmerdale and someone takes their shirt off and they've got a six pack. You watch, you're, watching, you're watching James Bond, he's got a six pack. Everyone's, everyone's got a six pack, you know, it's just like completely normal. I think we don't, I don't think we've really recognised that with, with or I think we've gone a long way working in the hair and beauty industry with uh, women's body, positive body images and stuff. But I think we're still, I think it's just becoming a thing for men a lot more now, especially social media. It's constant, isn't it? You're bombarded and you're comparing yourself all the time to, comparison is the thief of joy, isn't it? You can have the best day in the world, you go on social media and someone's had a better day and then you're in a bad place because of it. And I think the banter, the bullying, the body image, the pressures that we are putting on ourselves to be something, it, it can be quite difficult. And I think that is, we you just need to be more careful about what we say to other people don't we yeah what do you think Hope? yeah i think i do think the body image is a really interesting one actually and i've been thinking a lot about this recently um just kind of i guess more broadly because i i know that with like body image and eating disorders they don't kind of cause one another necessarily but they become so intrinsically linked and in so many situations i think people project so much of their fear their anxieties their kind of yeah insecurities onto their body as a little bit of a coping mechanism and then you start to hide behind it and you maybe then develop all of the unhealthy behaviors around food. And I think over the last couple of years, probably partly because of the pandemic, but I think probably before then as well, we've just become this like society which is totally obsessed with bodies and image. And we all seem to be trying to get some sort of self-worth from what we look like, whether you're male or female, I think everyone's doing it. And I do think that even when you see people all over social media sharing photos of their six pack or whatever their body might look like, I still think that they're trying to gain their self-worth from what they look like, even though maybe they're in the body positive community trying to kind of own it. So I think as a society, we need to find a way to actually move away from that because our bodies are the least interesting thing about us. No one's gonna go home this evening and remember what I looked like at all. They're gonna remember what we said and that's the important thing. And I think actually our role, kind of probably taking it out of this room is to think actually, how can we be that person who doesn't go into a room and immediately judge what everyone else is kind of looking like and what they're wearing and whether they've lost or gained weight. And I do, my whole thing, yeah, just with the pandemic as well, it's like we're judging everyone's pandemic based on whether they lost or gained weight. And that is just not okay. So I think generally it's like a commitment that yeah, I would encourage people to maybe take this evening actually to just move kind of away from that self kind of obsessed image, yeah, that we all have. I I really worry for the, the young people. Um, it's two things I can kind of speak in less of my own experience, but I played in a charity football game quite a few years ago at Carrow Road. I'm a Norwich fan, so that's why I was at Carrow Road. And uh, I was in the changing room with Chris Sutton. He used to, play for, used to play for Norwich now on Five Live and BT Sport and stuff. He calls a spade a spade. 
And a lot of the team was made up of YouTubers, <laughs> guys I'd never, literally never heard of. And then it, it got time to get, get changed and get ready for the game. And me and Chris Sutton just stood there aghast because literally every single one of these YouTubers looked like he just stepped off the front cover of Men's Health. I mean, Sutton called them out beautifully. He just went, what the fuck has happened? Look at this. <laughs> Sorry for the language. He just went, look at the state of you lot. And it was very, very funny. It was kind of disarming. And they sort of, but I, I just remember saying to him, I said, goodness me, you know, I don't remember a six pack when I was at school. I don't think he even heard of it. I mean, we had, you know, guys in the gym. I went to the gym a bit, but six packs. And I, it leads me to, to remember a holiday about five years ago. And we went with my sister's two families as well. And my nephew, James, was 13 at the time. So he's getting to that age that my boy, who's 12 at the moment, is being a bum, you know, become a little bit more conscious about how they look. And James's behavior throughout that holiday was just weird. We were in Portugal, the sun was shining, it was hot. He'd spent a lot of time in the apartment. He would just drink water the whole time. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with water. I wasn't expecting him to be hitting the margaritas, but he just drank water. All these lovely things available at breakfast that he'd never normally have at home, he doesn't touch any of them. He's just eating very, very healthy things. And one afternoon, he disappeared for about three hours. And I said to my sister Hannah, I said, Where, where's James gone? Oh, she said, oh, it's really embarrassing. He's in the room cooking boiled eggs with John, who's, who's my sister's husband. I said, why is he doing that? Oh, he's trying to get his protein fill. I just said, Hannah, are you not worried about this? She said, yeah, I'm really worried. I said, have you chatted to him about this? I said, where's this come from? It must have come from, from social media, from Instagram. Have you looked at the kind of people he's following? And she gave me his phone later in the holiday when he wasn't looking at it. And I just had a quick look at all the people he's following. And it was a constant stream of sculpted, perfect bodies. And this was stealing the joy, exactly right about comparison, steals so much joy all of the time. It was stealing the joy of a 13-year-old enjoying a holiday. He was more worried about the six-pack, which, by the way, we didn't see for the entire week. He kept it hidden under a pink T-shirt. But that was what life had become about for him. And I'm thankful to say now he's 18, he's in a much better place. He's not obsessed about the body image in any way, shape or form compared to how he was then. But he was on a dangerous path at that point, really dangerous. He was losing a lot of weight and it was stealing so much joy out of his life. So I really, you know, it's something I'm very focused on in, in terms of my boy Ethan's life, that he doesn't get snared by these images that can so quickly lead you on a path to what I would describe as a really dangerous place. Um. I remember my dad was obsessed with me doing like calf exercises. Just uh, your calves. Just your calves. He was like, he was like, so you're like the Popeye of legs. He was like, what? He's like, he's like, do your calf exercises, do your press ups, do your X Y Z. And I would be like, okay, so I'm 16, and then you've got. And at school we had bleep tests. I don't know if anybody they still do those. <sighs> yeah, the bleep tests were 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 hard, and um, it's like it was awful kind of like seeing people who couldn't necessarily keep up and then they were kind of like put down and they're like, oh yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't make it to level nine or 10, whatever. I always got to level seven and that was cool. I'd, I got to level seven and I said, okay, I'm gonna just check out here. I don't yeah. need to compete with anybody because no, so I was just lazy. Um, Dr. As, when it comes to a bleep test, okay. I'm gonna, no, <laughs> so like in a, She's, in our school, it was in a, um, it's like a cardio test, but it was, um, it was like in a basketball court. And I think level one, you won for, like, it's a very slow beep. So you've got to get to the other side before uh, the beep ends. So it goes beep and you're running. And that's level one. Level seven is like beep, 
beep, level 10, level 10 is obviously faster. And then so by the time you've got to, level, by the time you're doing all of that, people end up dropping out. And then the teacher's like marking who's gotten that far. And we think we have to do those every term. I don't think they did those in private school as, so yeah, you didn't have to you, do you that. You do the calf muscles, the one muscle you, you can't really get bigger with exercise. It's genetic. I don't know. It's, it's the, I don't know. What, what did you, what was your kind of like, you know, you said you worked with like the gender dysphoria sort of thing. When it comes to bodies, how, how well, before, you before, before the gender dysphoria, I was thinking about how, um, I think in terms of what we consider to be acceptable or not in terms of body shaming, that men are slightly behind women because with women now you've got the whole sort of dove adverts where everybody's okay and Marks and Spencers and everyone's embracing that sort of idea. But with men, I think it's still more very much sort of men's health cover model or you're a dad bod or, and it's, and it's still okay to, to shame men about not being uh, looking right. I think we're a bit behind there. So we'll probably catch up at some point, but, um, but yeah, we get, we, we get, we get people with, with, Body dysmorphia, both men and women, and people might be surprised that there are men, but there there are, and they and the, the focus gets on one particular thing, and if that's not quite right, then it goes to something else. And objectively, looking at them, thinking, well, you know, this thing, you're fine, um, but the the it's 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 located on one one aspect, um, and I suppose the, the gender thing that's that's a whole other the gender dysphoria thing that's a whole other thing, but but. Um, yeah, I think, the, 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 like Hope said, the, 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 there's far more to us than what we look like. But the first thing we notice is what someone looks like before any other data set becomes expanded. And as soon as that data set arrives and, and we get into that data set, the, the what they look like data becomes irrelevant and historic and we've forgotten it. But we get so focused on that. And then you've got, you know, you've got the sort of the, all those shows I don't watch, the Love Island type things where everyone's got these sort of super white teeth. And I look at the game because I don't really watch it, but sometimes you get the wrong channel. You go, why are their teeth so white? Why are their eyes so white? And why are they? And you're not quite sure whether they're really human, but they're, but it's what the people are aspiring to be. They're aspiring to be these super white teeth, super white eyed, perfect chiseled body. And they don't, it doesn't seem real, but that's what, that's what people have, that's the diet that people are being fed. And that's what they're aspiring to. And all their, all their sort of social media influencer type people that they're following, um, that's, that, those are their role models. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a worry. Yeah. Um, one of the myths was about crying. And I think we'd be remiss to not kind of discuss that on this panel. Um, and I know that grief is kind of a universal experience, especially over the pandemic. A lot of people have lost people, they've lost, um, you know, the way that, you know, they, they used to live and things of that nature. I wanted to ask you, Dr. James, just about what you've kind of experienced with, with crying and what you, your thoughts on that are as, as men. Me? Yes, you. Well, <laughs> I didn't know what crying was. Uh, we were never allowed to cry. I never cried. Uh, as I said, I had a master. I'm quite friendly with him now. He said, SP, have I beaten you this week? I said, no. So he said, come here and bend over. And we got beaten, but we didn't cry. You just were not allowed to cry, because if you cried, you were, you were terrible. So you bottled it all up. I, and I don't think I've ever cried in my life, but I've been very hurt internally, and I've had serious issues. And obviously, the closest I came to crying probably was when my father died. And then I had to speak, and he was 93, and I spoke at the funeral, and uh, my brother broke down, and he was crying the whole time. He couldn't speak. So in a sense, it's happened, but it's, I have to be careful with my grandchildren now because 
when they cry a bit, there's a limit. You'd like them to cry a bit, but equally, you, are they crying for attention or are they crying because there's a problem? So I don't, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know enough about it, but I understand it's a natural emotion. You know, you'll find that the, the, my 20-month grandson will cry in the car because he wants a bit of attention. And, you know, it's getting them balanced right. But, but in my day, we were not allowed to cry. I didn't know what the word meant. But I think letting out within reason makes sense. It's all part of life. I mean, you know, and there's no such thing to say men don't cry. That's rubbish. We're all going to cry. What does anybody else think? Yeah, I think there's still this. I, I, I do it myself. I mean, I'm, I do it myself. You know, I, I've been on the tube, and um, I was on the tube, I can't remember when it was, not that long ago, and I was reading this this book and a really sad part of this book and I was like oh sh I'm welling up I'm welling up like oh no like stop reading like I don't want people to see me cry and that's and I was like Johnny what are you doing like you know you shouldn't be embarrassed to cry but um interestingly uh, a few years before that when I was going through a horrible time I was on the tube and I was crying quite uh uh quite a lot because I, I was yeah in a really bad place and people moved away they literally moved away and I was like whoa, like, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not infectious, do you know what I mean? Uh, what? Uh, I couldn't believe it. And interestingly, you know, I've been on the tube and, or on public transport and I've seen, um, again, I'm generalizing, but I've seen females cry and, and they usually, usually, someone might come up to them. And, but with men, there's still this like, and they're not just crying, any sort of mental uh, d distress. You know, again, unfortunately, I've had, uh, I had quite a public um, uh, psychotic episode, uh, again, years ago in, in Covent Garden of all places. It's not great. Because, um, you know, all the people. And again, the people, again, it was like I was, like I was sort of in, infectious and, and people were like, um, and again, you know, it related to physical health. If I would have been on the floor having a, I don't know, anything like a heart attack, I bet you, or, or a, a bone was sticking out, I bet you any money, people would have come straight over and, you know, but because again, it's, it's, it's mental health, it's emotions, it's vulnerability, it's a man, people just, you know, keeping away. And so it's sort of ingrained in me now, I think that, you know, I do get embarrassed when I show emotion in, in, in public, um, which is silly because for me, I'd, but it's, I think it's ingrained, you know? Yeah. 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 And it's a really dangerous narrative, I think, when I was growing up, I don't think it's still the same amongst boys at school, that if you do cry, you know, I can remember all the various names you were called. Big Girl's Blouse was one of the common ones. I don't know what that had to do with you crying, but that was something, you're being a sissy, you're being this, you're being that. So as a boy growing up, you're taught that crying is just, just the wrong thing to do. But I'd actually say, looking back on the last four years I've had, that actually crying and being comfortable crying is actually, it's, it's a healing medicine in terms of recovering from the, you know, the two episodes I'll talk about is when I was having very, very pronounced mental health issues at Sky Sports four years ago and I had to come away from work. You know, the biggest release in terms of beginning to get on the journey to recovery was at Stamford Bridge and this, had all been brewing for a few weeks, this immense anxiety, these panic attacks every time I was trying to work. And my producer picked up on noticing that I'd become more and more detached from what was going on. Thankfully, when I went on air, I could still make sense, but around everything else, I'd kind of switched out and zoned out. And he pulled me to one side, took me away from where everyone else was. 
And he just simply said, are you okay? You just don't seem right. And I just remember the tears, the tears beginning to fall because in that moment I felt this huge weight coming off the shoulders. It wasn't in that moment that suddenly everything was better. But at last I wasn't hiding this thing that I was dealing with alone. And I had someone who then says to me, look, I will do everything in my power over the course of the next few hours to be in your ears and my earpiece and just guide you through what you're doing. And it changed everything. I was able to do it. I mean, I had to come off work a couple of weeks later. But just in that moment, the tears that fell felt like they lifted some of that weight off my shoulders. And in, in the next few weeks that came after that, when I lose my first wife very suddenly to blood cancer, and you then launch from a place where you're struggling to do your work through mental health issues to being launched into the, the even more weird and horrible and disconcerting world of grief, I found letting those tears go massively helpful and a key part of the journey through grief and to where I find myself today. And, you know, I was always very comfortable crying in front of Ethan, who was eight at the time. And some would say, you know, he really doesn't need to see this. No, the only thing I would say he didn't need to see, and that's why I was really careful, was not expressing anger in front of him, because that's one of the other emotions that come out when you've gone through loss, huge amounts of anger and injustice and all these kind of things. So I protect him from that. I always felt comfortable crying around him. And even when it was really disconcerting for him, I could explain when I calmed down, look, I'm, I'm missing your mum. I'm worried about the future. I'm worried about you. And actually, I think that's been really helpful for him over the last few years because actually, you know, I don't want him to grow up just being a boy who just cries all the time, but I want him to be a boy that grows into a man who knows that is okay. And you won't be judged because if his dad's judging him, then goodness knows what others are going to be saying. So I wanted to have that healthy relationship with him, but also have my own emotions and saying, you know, actually, you know, like vulnerability can be a sign of strength. I think a guy being able to cry should be a sign of strength because actually it is a sign of strength. You know, um, for me, um, yeah, I'm still quite not there. I'm, I'm, I'm still quite not there with, with I'm honest, being comfortable with that. Uh, I should be. Uh, there's a few regrets I have. I mean, um, when I had my OCD and I was in a dreadful place, you know, I would, I'm not sure it was because I was ashamed of crying. I was ashamed of the thoughts that I was having, but I would, would spend a lot of time being emotional and crying in my bedroom so nobody could see. I think I didn't want to let my dad down. I didn't want to let my mum down. Again, going back to the OCD issue, you know, when we talk about mental health issues when I was a kid, the only thing that I saw that was mental health and the problems of mental health, if you saw someone on the news and someone had committed a horrific crime because it was down to mental health and those people are then getting put away for life. So there'd be lots of times when my OCD was so torturous that I would cry, but I would cry on my own. Um, and it's something I'm still working on to express that emotion. I don't do it in front of people and I admire Simon what he said. I think that is absolutely the right way to do it. There's regrets that I have within my business. Um, you know, we had, including employees and associates, there was over a thousand people within my organization. And um, one of the huge regrets and the, the, the reason I am why I am now and why I want to do this is because I never, you know, I believe it comes from the top as well. 
you know, I think that's a really important thing to talk about when we talk about mental health and being open and stuff like that. CEOs, people in power, people in positions of, of power and, and, and at the top of organizations, I think it's pervasive like water. It needs to filter down and it's got to come from that. One of my biggest regrets when I had my organization, my company, is that I never allowed people in to see that because I was always worried, one, what they might think of me that I'm leading a business, one, that they would lose faith in me. And looking back now, if I'd had just amended that culture slightly and had the courage and the ability to tell my employees that, you know, it's, look, I'm the top of this company, I've created this company, but I have really bad mental health issues as well, I suffer. And sometimes I just want to burst out crying. I think they would have had far more respect from me than me being this typical guy who's kind of straight around the office, kind of being like, you know, um, like the leader uh, and things like that. So, yeah, I have huge regrets. I want to put those things right. That's what I'm trying to do within my charity. As far as the crying thing, I, I'm not like Simon. I've not got to the point where I do that in front of my children. I think it's something that, that should be embraced. I think if you have those emotions, it's absolutely right that we share them. Uh, I'm still, you know, in a process where I'm working on myself with my mental health. Uh, and I want to be a role model to my kids, and it's it's lovely to hear what Simon said. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't cry, and I've never cried in really in front of people. But I've cried a lot, uh, you know. I'm, and you're the first people to hear this, really. I've cried a lot on my own in my own space because I've not wanted to share that vulnerability. Um, and this is why this conversation is so important because now, like, I'm almost want to go back and cry just to show everybody that you know I should be doing that. So I'm learning something today, and. Um, yeah, uh, so my biggest regret is I didn't bring in that culture of being open with my employees. And perhaps if I'd been open and I would encourage that, then, then, then things would have been slightly different for some of my employees who did struggle with the mental health, which I carry that burden with me even till today. Can I just pick up on that? Because mm -hmm. it just reminds me very briefly of a story. I, I spoke on mental health at one of London's biggest law firms not too far from here a couple of years ago. And I, I spoke about that battle I was talking about to you earlier, that mental health period, and imposter syndrome became a massive thing in my head, feeling not good enough to sit in a studio alongside guys who'd play the game at the very highest level and just feeling a fraud, like I shouldn't be there. And at this law company, I spoke about imposter syndrome. And at the end, the guy who's one of the major partners of this huge law firm, it's in the top four law firms in London, stood up in front of everyone and he said, thank you to me, he said, I just want you to know and there's a lot of people who just started at this law firm listening in to me ostensibly. But he said at the end, you know, I just want you to know there are days when I come to work and I've worked here for 30 years. I've started where you are now and got all the way to the top. I still have days where I doubt myself. I still have days where I don't feel good enough to be doing the job I do. Everything around me says I am good enough. But I have those days where I just feel a fraud. And you know what? The interesting thing is when I got the feedback from that session, you know, his vulnerability is, is one of the head partners there to say, actually, the days when I feel exactly like Simon was describing, that made the bigger impact than anything I'd said. And I was, I thought it was brilliant because they'd heard from somebody who worked at their company, who they looked up to, had the bravery and the vulnerability to go, yep, there are days when I feel exactly like that, but it hasn't stopped me getting to the very top. And it was, it was incredibly powerful that he was able to share that. Can I just say, uh, the newer death, <laughs> you want to cry, Adam? You want to cry? Listen to the new Adele album. I don't know if anyone's heard it yet, but first line of the first song. I was like, <laughs> what's going on? 
I think the problem with crying is that it's very visible and I think one of the differences with men and women is the visibility of the emotional state and I think um, if if we've got the hypothesis that men don't really either cry so much like James is saying or they've been trained not to, or they don't show it, or they've, they've learned not to, then there's often this idea that, well, they don't look like, they don't look like they're depressed. No, they're not depressed. They're not, they're not crying. They can't be depressed. And one of the problems that is their level of denial. So I, I tell my patients that being depressed is a bit like um, being brainwashed by a cult. And the, the depression is this cult that that sucks you into this warped way of thinking. And I said, you know, when you walk down the street and there's a man with a tannoy in Oxford Circus saying, if you're not a winner, you're a sinner, what's he saying? But obviously I didn't pay enough attention to him. But, but when, you, when you walk past those people who are trying to sort of brainwash you, you, just, oh, you walk past them. When your own brain is coming up with this sort of distorted way of perceiving things, it's coming from your own brain. You're not going to ignore it because, you know, your brain is normally right isn't it because so, your brain so when, you, when your brain is telling you everything is bleak and negative and pessimistic and awful and you're worthless and, then it must be true because your brain's coming up with that data from perceiving information so it's the invisible stuff which is the thinking that uh, that i'm worried about the visible stuff like whether people are crying or not is, is one thing but it's the invisible signs that you don't see so a man might not be crying it doesn't mean he's not depressed not upset and that's the worrying thing is that People don't realise that they're suffering, but also the denial in themselves, because they don't realise they're depressed, because life really is worthless and they really are meaningless and they really should be dead, you know, because they, they, it, it makes sense to them. So it's the external uh, uh, visibility of their, their depression or their suffering and the internal recognition of it, because they may not be, they may not realise, they may be profoundly depressed, but not realise they're depressed, because it makes complete sense to them. So it's completely invisible. Wow. Um, the last myth probably going to touch on before we open up for questions um, is the lone wolf myth. And um, I was taught, you know, men had to be individual, had to be by themselves, had to go and, you know, do all these things um, alone. No, in the visibility thing, no one can see that you're struggling with this. No one can do that. Um, but what came up when I was writing this chapter was the conversation around love and also friendship. Um, I wanted to open it out to everybody just about men and friendship. Like, because I found that in the conversations I was having, the lot of the conversations that men had among one another was very shoulder to shoulder, very like, you know, playing PlayStation and kind of like, is everything okay sort of thing, but not necessarily, not really like connecting or looking in that way. And um, I wanted to see what Hope thought about like what you, when you when you look at you know men and the kind of men in your life and thinking about them as a community, what do you see? Do you see them doing the solid the solitary kind of experience? You see them with their friends. What do you observe? Yeah, um, they don't talk about mental health at all. Um, yeah, none of my guy mates do. Um, to each other, I think if they ever talk about mental health, they tend to come to me because they know that I'm not going to judge them. Um, but I don't think that's because the other boys in our group of friends would judge them. I think that's just the way they've been brought up. Um, so yeah, I think they, yeah, they tend to just play sport and don't talk about their emotions at all. But I think one, and I was thinking about this in the last myth that you were talking about with the crying as well, was I sometimes wonder though whether that's partly, I don't want to say the fault of females, but I think maybe I'm, I would say that I would probably be to blame in some of those situations. So maybe when 
boys that are close to me in my lives or even like my other half will get upset about something, I tend to then immediately jump in and then project exactly what I'm feeling in that moment and my worries and my anxieties and my concerns about it. So it kind of shelves his worries and his feelings. And I wonder whether a lot of guys then just don't feel heard maybe by some of the females in their lives or their really close guy mates. And so then they just go out there and do life alone. Does that make sense? So it's kind of, yeah. So I think it's, I guess, a role for people who are in that supporting environment, whether you're female or male, to actually make sure that we're giving people that space to talk about it. Because I think, yeah, I just think it's, I think that's probably one of the issues, which is why men spend so much time on their own, not feeling like they can talk about things, trying to solve a lot of things on their own. And I know even with like my other half, actually, I'll ask him, I don't know, I'm like, I don't know, we do this thing every week where we're like, what three things have good that have happened? What are three worries and what are three things you're looking forward to? And um, every single week, it will be my worries that come first. And then he'll be like, oh, I don't really have any worries. All his worries will all be about me. So I think, again, it's that whole issue that probably needs to be discussed between men more so, so that they have that space. Yeah, I, I personally, I think that we, we're talking about getting men to talk all the time. And we talked about this earlier on downstairs, but the problem is when men do talk, no one is prepared or, or knows how to listen or they're scared to say anything because we're not comfortable or, or we don't see men having those conversations. So we're not comfortable around it. So when a bloke does open up, you see it. I've seen it in, in the pub with guys or with your mates playing PlayStation. Someone does mention it. Everyone goes, I don't know what to say, so I'm not going to say anything. Oh, you'll be fine. You, you know, have another pint or whatever it is, and we dismiss it. And that's really that's probably the worst thing you could do, isn't it? But you know, it's it's when people open up. We're telling people to talk all the time. So when they do talk, if you don't know what to say, be honest. Say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here if you want to tell me. Don't try and fix and solve it. And we because we like doing that, don't we? We like fixing and solving their problem. And going, you need to do this. And when I went through it, this happened. But actually, just go. Look, I. I'm here for you. If you want to talk to me about it, I might not know what to say. I might I don't understand, but I'm here for you to try and understand. And I think that's you know that's really powerful. But men are you talk about men playing PlayStation or, uh, or we're, we're very good at talking whilst doing something else. We're not very good at sitting down and going so. We're going to talk about this. How are you feeling today? Because we find it confrontational. We're scared. We don't know if we're going to say the wrong thing, upset anyone, look weak, feel guilty. And actually, that's why we, we, when we're doing it, we're cutting someone's hair. People are not thinking about what they're saying. And we're not having direct eye contact. They're looking at us through the mirror and they just start telling us stuff. I mean, people tell me stuff I didn't want to hear. Um, you know, and, and, they, and that is, that's what's really powerful. And I think we need to just provide as many opportunities for these conversations to have. And like guys, if it is playing PlayStation, if it's, I know, has anyone been on a road trip before with your mates and you have the best conversations when you're sat in the car just chatting away and you think, God, I'm so, I know that guy so much better now because we're not sat down and forced to have a conversation, but we're there. There's that level of trust there because you're trusting that person to get you home or wherever it is, and you just feel free to talk. And I think that's, we need to think about places like that for men as well. If that is, you know, if it is playing PlayStation, if it's coming to the barbershop, if it's working on cars, gardening, whatever it is, walking, you know, there's that uh, thing in Bristol called Dudes and Dogs. Have you heard of that? It's just a load of guys that go for walks with their... <laughs> but, it's, but it's just guys going for walks with dogs and then they end up supporting each other and talking to each other because they're not but thinking I think, about I think it is partly a generation thing. My generation never spoke. And amongst so very close friends of mine, people never speak privately about anything. Today, for the first time, strangers ever at a golf club, a friend of mine lost his wife a few years ago because I'd been open, had a chat to me about maybe seeking a little bit of psychiatric help. 
uh, the first one of my friends ever said that. But about but three years ago, I was standing at a bus stop in Wimbledon, waiting for the bus, and I started talking to a chap who looked rather miserable, and he offloaded his life, because people do it as strangers, and he told me he was going to take his own life. I took him to the windmill uh, restaurant and Wimble cafe in Wimbledon on three occasions. He then thanked me, said he's very happy now he's going to live in Spain. He, he offloaded <laughs> to be a stranger. No, no, but he was happy. He was off to live in Spain. But he was wanting to take his own life. But he could offload to a stranger. And strange enough, sometimes people can offload to strangers, but they can't offload to the people that they're very close to. And, and I think particularly my generation. Hopefully it'll be better in the future. What, what I noticed was that there's, there's two sorts of males. Those that are, are my patients and those that aren't. <laughs> and those, those that have come to see me, they've got used to the idea they're going to have to talk a bit. But the ones who aren't, my friends or people I know, my neighbours, they, they usually start off with a, who are these people that you see? What, what's, what's wrong with them? What are this other alien life forms that I see? And lockdown was a wonderful example because I was, as with many people, I got to know my neighbours a bit better. I didn't, you know, I live in one of those houses, converted into flats, and we sort of knew who each other what was. But then when we're all sort of in lockdown, this big house bubble, I've got this shed. It's not really a shed. It's a, I call it a shed in the back of the garden, and um, and it's sort of my cigar lounge. I sort of sit there drinking things that James probably invented, and um, <laughs> and when my neighbours saw that I was in the shed, they were sort of. They'd, they'd pop round and they'd say, oh, look, you're always welcome. So throughout the lockdown, my, my shed became like this prohibition bar. And, and the, the, it was any one of the neighbours who could see I was in there, and including our dodgy local builder who was always hanging around. And throughout lockdown, it became this every day. Every, everyone would just come to the shed. There was me, dodgy builder, neighbours. And, um, and they started off from, who are these people that you talk to all day? What's wrong with them? To by the end of it, they, they were all, it, it became like this men's shed. And, and you know, occasionally their wives would want to come through, and, oh, this is a men's shed. I was going, is it? It's just my shed. It's just, you can come if you want. And, and they're, they're talking about everything and they're talking about their problems. And it's becoming a bit like a therapy group, <laughs> trying to relax in the evenings. But, uh, but, uh, but that's an example of just a, something that was available. It wasn't really trying to make it into a therapy group. It was just trying to have a little quiet evening on my own in my shed. But the people were coming, and because they felt relaxed and comfortable, the most unlikely demographic meetings of people um, who realised that actually once, once, like all group panellists know, once you spend enough time with each other, everyone's the same, basically. It doesn't matter whether they look different on the outside. And comfortable enough. Once they're comfortable, then they're able to... And, and you know, and then they now realise, actually, they're no different from my patients because they realise all this other stuff. It's, it's, it's all there that they probably weren't aware of, bubbling under the surface, and then it all comes out. They just need a vehicle. Yeah, it does take time with guys. You know, I think we live in a very instant world where we want... We want everyone to open up immediately. Guys don't, in my experience, tend to do that. Um, I was part of a, a church in Reading for a few years, and I'd seen two guys in that congregation over the course of two or three years who were, were having issues, at, both of them with their work, separate careers, but both were having issues at work. And as time went on, I began to see these guys kind of disengaging more from both church, but also social things. You could see a certain look in their, just in their, their face, the way they handled themselves, that they were struggling. And over time, they did the lone wolf thing. They began to withdraw from social things. They began to withdraw from church. And very sadly, for both of them, they both ended up withdrawing from their families and their marriages fell apart. Two guys who dealt with some of life's challenges, 
in their case, career and financial worries that we were featuring in your, you know, your slides earlier. And that, in the end, because they decided to be the lone wolf and deal with that alone and away from everyone else, cost them their marriage. And I don't know where those guys are now, where their lives are. And it led me to want to do something to try and you know, catch these guys when that begins to happen. And that was just to get a group of men together. And it was a small group at first. And we would just meet regularly on a Friday morning at Pret-a-Manger very early in the morning to get them before they got on the train at Reading to go to work. And it was just a time when we would sit there, have a cup of coffee. Uh, someone would sometimes share a thought for the day or we would just chat. Other times we went out for a curry or we'd go on a social night. For the first two years, it was utterly, utterly surface conversation. You know, it's the whole, how are you doing? Yeah, not bad. What's going on? Yeah, kids are winding me up. Work's all right, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember this moment <laughs> where everything changed. And it's an odd moment, but my goodness me, it just opened the can on the group. One day, a guy, we're just going around the group. It's about 7.20 on November morning. to say, yeah, how are you doing? And this guy called Hugo went, I'm just, I don't know how to say this, guys, but I, I'm really struggling with porn. And it was a kind of collective intake of breath. But in that one moment, this guy had dared to be vulnerable enough to admit to something that he was ashamed of, that was gonna have a really big impact on his marriage if he didn't get a grip on this. And suddenly it felt like the walls began to tumble down. And over the next few weeks, guys began to feel more and more comfortable sharing their struggles. It wasn't about pornography every week, but it became a place, a safe space, where we'd invested that time in each other and gone through a lot of very surface stuff. And the kind of what I wanted from that group was given its best expression shortly after my first wife dies very suddenly. Because I had a lot of family and friends around me in my house where I was living in Reading at the time. But every single day for about the first four weeks, there was a knock on the door at some point in the day. And we called the, this men's group the Bacon Boys because it met at breakfast time. There would be one of that group coming around. And we got to that stage where they would come, they'd be comfortable sat there if I was crying. If I had nothing to say and my mind was a million miles away, they were comfortable sitting in silence. And when I was throwing loads of questions and anger at them about what had happened and what the hell I was going to do in my life now, they were equally comfortable talking because we'd invested in each other. We'd invested in that group. We'd gone to a level that you were never going to get to just on a quick pub night out. You know, it took time. But my goodness me, when we got there, that group for me in those first month or two were a key part of me getting back eventually onto my feet because they were able to come and sit with me man to man and be at ease with what was for them a really, really difficult situation to be around. I'm going to have to wrap here. Um, I'm being signaled and then being in um, various different things. Um, thank you. Thank you to everybody for joining me in this conversation. There we have it. Thank you if you reached this far. Um, have a happy new year. If any of these issues cropped up and they triggered you in any way, please feel free to kind of reach out to me and share um, any stories that you have. Likewise, I will share some resources in the show notes. Um, that you can probably reach out to if if you so feel the need to. Let's bring in 2022 with a new energy, a new spirit, and a new vibe. Let's leave behind this disconnection, this willingness to throw people away and to 
leave people unattended and disregarded and let's really make an effort to to be human to be together because you never know how long we have and you don't know how long we're going to be able to sit there with people and and you know laugh again or you know so I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to say have a great new year. Have a great 2022. And I look forward to journeying with you all the way through. Okay? Stay blessed. Bye.